since this is the end of our third day together, a little bit like Jack's story on the second night or the, the first full, end of the first full day of Maladoma Some having sat in the circle in the center of the village for, for three days and uh, everybody getting to come and tell him what they think of him and uh, not being able to respond, just the practice of taking it. And that in some ways I imagine you've been doing that with yourself for the last three days. Your mind telling you what it thinks of you. <laughs> over and over and over. Or in the second part of that story of uh, Nacho Cheetos, I think his name was. <laughs> You've been sitting here for three days. And here I am, the Lord of Death. And I've come to grant you some wishes. And since I'm a good Buddhist Lord of Death, the only three things worth wishing for on one level is the end of greed, the end of hatred, and the end of delusion so that we can return to our happiness, well-being, contentment. Being here, uh, especially with Jack and Howie, who have both been teachers to me for a very long time, Often, when I spend time with them, I get very reflective on my early Dharma practice and how much gratitude I have. Today, I was spending time with my family, my wife, and my daughter. And it occurred to me, not for the first time, that the Dharma taught me how to love. That without coming to these retreats, and sitting, and walking, and sitting, and walking, and listening to the barrage of insults from my mind. I may have never 
learned how to love. And it's definitely not what I originally signed up for. But it is what I want to talk about tonight. Like probably most of you, most of us in this room, my entry into Buddhism was through the door of mindfulness. I experienced the practical, useful application of being free from the future and free from the past through paying attention to the present moment experience of breath and body. My faith in mindfulness was verified fairly quickly. This works for at least a momentary reprieve from the hell realms that my mind can create about the future and about the past. And when I first actually started studying uh, the Dharma, the teachings, it made perfect sense. Finally, the suffering in my life was being acknowledged. The first truth, this life is difficult, it's painful, stressful. I could relate, <laughs> as I'm sure you can. And when I started to hear about uh, the causes of our suffering, greed and hatred and delusion, anger, resentment, attachment. I knew I was in the right place. Because as I was practicing mindfulness, that's all I saw. I turned my attention inward, and I verified the truth that life is greed, hatred, and delusion. This guy's got it. I look in here, that's all I see. When I first heard about metta, loving kindness, and the other Brahma-viharas of appreciation and compassion and equanimity, I had some suspicion that perhaps the hippies just added that stuff in. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure how it fit with this brilliant thesis about suffering 
that I related to so well. You had me at suffering. <laughs> Starting to lose me at forgiveness, at kindness, at compassion. but my confidence in the powerful changes that were beginning to take place through mindfulness, my confidence and uh, faith, not blind faith, but trust of my teachers, And maybe some level of an inner sense that uh, compassion and love and forgiveness were a worthy undertaking. Some inkling of hope. I was open to the possibility, at least. One uh, sutta, one of the ways that the Buddha talked about his awakening and, and uh, discovery of wisdom and compassion, of loving kindness and equanimity, appreciation. He said it's as if uh, walking through the jungle, or in this case, walking through the desert, and you come upon an ancient city uh, that has been lost, that has been overgrown with the jungle. Or uh, I was watching them sweep the walkways earlier, and I was thinking, you know, if we didn't sweep here with the wind blowing the sand, how many years before these buildings would be buried? I don't know how many, but I don't think it would take that long before the dust, the sediment, the sand would start to bury these, this whole center. Maybe a hundred years, but I'm not sure. He says, it's as if I've rediscovered this ancient civilization. Sometimes when we're practicing the mindfulness uh, inside ourselves during the sitting or the walking practice, it's a little bit like we uh, stumble upon just a, a piece of an artifact within ourselves. Not the whole city. Just a, a little uh, piece of a, of a wall, of a brick, of a of an ancient wisdom 
that we had forgotten. We rediscover a part of ourselves. Loving kindness was like that for me. I feel like uh, in one way, mindfulness acted as like a metal detector. It's all dirt up here, but there's something in there. There's something else beneath the surface. that I have no access to. It's completely foreign. But this mindful awareness is beginning to show me that there's something in there. One of the things we see so clearly in our mindfulness practice. As I said before, as all of the ways that our perhaps survival instincts of our body and mind uh, are craving all of the time, filled with greed, filled with it should be different than it is. Mindfulness brings us into direct contact with how much resistance aversion, anger and hatred we have towards ourselves, towards others, towards the weather, towards the traffic, towards people who don't behave the way we think they should behave. On some level, I feel that it's like, uh, one way to look at this is that every time we do our habitual, reactive pattern of clinging, grasping, pushing away, aversion, it's like sprinkling just a little bit of more dust over our hearts. over the ancient civilization of our loving hearts. And how many times a day, how many times an hour, are we putting some more spoonfuls of dirt covering up our hearts more and more When I started practicing, I was very young, only 17 years old, only 19 by the time I got to my first retreat with Jack. But just those 18, 19 years of dumping truckloads of debris upon my heart year after year,
eventually it becomes inaccessible. Lost. And what we find in the practice is that each moment of mindfulness, each phrase of metta, of compassionate intentions, of forgiveness, also begins the process of excavation. And as we all know, often those first layers of topsoil uncover some skeletons. To switch analogies, someone said, you know, it's like plunging the toilet. It all has to come to the surface first. Like Anushka talked about last night, all of the hindrances, all of the difficulties that we face when we start to pay attention to the heart, to the mind, to the present moment. I don't know... Uh, uh, I'm not not great with quoting people. Uh, I don't know if it was Trungpa or Suzuki Roshi, one of those guys, you know. <laughs> All the same. <laughs> Referred to uh, practice as one insult after another. And this excavation... Uh, can be like that. So many insults and so many, uh, you know, you think and you found it and you're digging and you're digging and you're intense Vipassana practice and you find it's just an old Coke can. (laughs) An old crack pipe. An old Playboy magazine. So much disappointment. I thought I was getting somewhere, and it's the same junk, same garbage. I practice loving kindness meditation almost every day on a very, very regular basis for several years before I started to mean it. As we've been doing in the afternoon, 
May I be at ease. May all beings be at ease. May I be free from suffering. May all beings be free from suffering. I said it every day. without much sincerity. Uh, in the beginning, I didn't mean it or even really want to mean it, and I felt resentful that these nice Buddhist folks were uh, encouraging me to do something that seemed so foreign to my mentality, my survival instincts. And then uh, I did it, and I wanted to mean it, there was that transition. I, I want to mean this, but I still don't mean it. And eventually, through the re repetition, and, and who knows, it's sort of just brainwashing ourselves, isn't it? <laughs> eventually, to the point where I sincerely meant it, but still didn't feel it. I meant it, and I wanted to feel kindness and love, but I still... Such a long process for some of us to learn to love. <laughs> what I know for sure is that without intentionally training the mind and the heart, it's not going to happen all by itself. This ancient city is not going to uncover itself. The meditative training of Buddhism is the shovel. And at times, uh, it's really the heavy lifting shovel. And at times, it's the fine brush when you actually find something in the archaeological dig of your life that you can brush off without destroying it and say, oh, here's a little piece of appreciation here. Let me look more closely at that. There's a little, there's a touch of equanimity in this. Let me... Uh, Blow it off some. Let me brush it to the side with a very fine-toothed, gentle uh, approach. In the Metta Sutta, teachings on loving-kindness that's from the Buddha pretty directly. Probably as close as we can get to his uh, actual words. He describes kindness and loving-kindness as so much more than just uh, uh, this may all beings be at ease. He says, if you want to have this heart of kindness and this attitude of friendliness, there are so many tasks, so many practices, so many qualities to be uncovered in this excavation of your heart. Humility, 
and acceptance. He talks about being easily satisfied and contented with what is offered. This is a good practice on retreat. Easily satisfied and content with what's offered here. Letting go as a practice of kindness towards yourself and towards the managers and towards each other. Letting go of your preferences, of your desire for it to be different than it is, resting in radical acceptance as an act of loving kindness. He says, unburdened with duties and frugal in your ways. doesn't mean that we don't have our duties. Here on retreat, your duty is uh, to follow the schedule, to adhere to the noble non-communication. I don't think we should call it noble silence anymore. Noble non-communication. Because we call it silence, and then people are suffering about people coughing. Hey, it's supposed to be silent. Shut up, pal. This is a silent retreat. Do not breathe so loud. <laughs> and why would they schedule a silent retreat right next to the freeway? This is supposed to be silent. <laughs> Noble non-communication. Eye contact, speaking, writing, reading, music, letting it all go. It is the duty of the practice in this form. Unburdened by it. It's not that we don't have duties, that we don't have to show up for our jobs, for our studies, for our relationships. We all have duties. Unburdened by them. Don't suffer so much about what you need to do in this context of this experience. Just do it with humility, with acceptance, with kindness. Three times in the Metta Sutta, the way that I read it, the Buddha implores us to forgive everyone everything. He says, let none deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. How are we going to free ourselves from despising ourselves, others, our enemies? I hear this as a prerequisite to being kind, to being loving. In the dig, <laughs> in the archaeological 
uncovering of your heart. Much of what is standing between freedom and our current contracted state of being is resentment. Towards ourselves, towards those who have harmed us, towards those who've harmed people that we love, or the planet, or whatever uh, ecological, social injustice that we're pissed off about. As an act of loving kindness for yourself and all living beings, letting go of all of the spite. He goes on to say, let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Again, how are we going to free ourselves from anger and from ill will? Because we have it, it's in us. When we're hurt, we get angry. When we see injustice, we feel ill will. uh, And there's a natural tendency to want to hurt others, to wish. Or to at least have that attitude of like, I wouldn't be that upset if he got hit by a bus. I wouldn't push him, but uh, I might not stop him either. I know you understand what I'm saying. In order to love, we have to forgive. In order to be happy, uh, content, In order for this work that you're doing here, this precious opportunity to uh, really take root in your life, you have to forgive everyone for everything. The extent to which we decide I'm going to hold on to this resentment or that resentment is to the extent, is the extent to which we are choosing to be unhappy still. The choice to cling is the choice to suffer. The choice to forgive, to at least turn our intention towards forgiveness to start trying to forgive. Even if you're a slow learner like me, and it takes five years of saying it and not meaning it, I can remember about 10 years into my practice when I realized I had forgiven everyone for everything, including myself. It was 
like a new uh, incarnation. I was surprised, and I started checking, and I'd even bring my stepdad to mind, you know, number one enemy. <laughs> How about him? And in ease, I'd been sending him forgiveness for eight years. And in ease with him, I said, well, what, about, what if I think of Hitler? Can I have compassion, kindness? Can I invite Hitler into my heart? Yes. And I was like, wow, this shit actually worked. I gotta tell Jack. <laughs> I was teaching a day on loving kindness recently, and in the middle of the meditation, we got to the difficult people, and I spontaneously said, no, uh, loving kindness for Osama. Obama, and your mama. <laughs> Everybody. The bad news was and is. Here in samsara, everything's impermanent, even forgiveness. That sucks, right? <laughs> After a decade of heavy lifting, I came, sometimes we come to that moment of, I don't hate anybody. Not even me. Not even the greatest, most confused person in, in the world. Everybody, there's room in my heart. Now, you know, sometimes that lasts for a few minutes or longer. But unless we're truly liberated, which I am not, uh, it doesn't last. It's an amazing experience. It's so worthy to get there. To have that confidence, oh, this is actually possible. Everyone, everything is not a theory. It is an experience. Now, uh, the mind and the heart can close again and can pick that back up and can return to anger and ill will and return to despising. And that's why we call it a practice, not a perfection. More practice, more forgiveness, more letting go. I've come to understand that loving kindness is not something that we cultivate. 
It's not something that we make. You know, I said earlier, we brainwash ourselves. I don't think so. The way it has felt to me is that there was love always here. I had just lost contact with them. It had just been buried. That this practice lets us uncover something that is present but obscured in all living beings. And I think that it's important to understand that. Yes, we're training our minds, we're creating new neural pathways. And, but what we're really doing is just uh, reaccessing the forgotten heart, the heart of, uh, we can call it bodhicitta, the enlightened heart, the compassionate heart, the Buddha's heart. Not that we're already enlightened, we are not. But that potential is there in every single living being. These practices let us access it. I think that the 12-step programs that treat alcoholism and addiction had a tremendous amount of wisdom when they put the uh, work around forgiveness and making amends to those you've harmed. and uh, When they put that work before meditation, I think that there's a lot of wisdom to that. And they say, you know, clean up all of your messes on some level, forgive everyone, ask for forgiveness from everyone, then, then sit still. <laughs> because as I'm sure you're experiencing, until you have done that, your mind will remind you once a minute who has betrayed you, who you've betrayed, how you've betrayed yourself. It's such a joy to meditate with a little bit of ammunition back. <laughs> with at least being able to respond to the judging mind with, I've done everything in my power to forgive, to be forgiven. It's such a different inner relationship when we've cleaned up all of the, uh, as my father says, when we've finished business, closed all of the accounts, come into the happiness that the Buddha spoke about, the happiness of blamelessness. Something important about that is that regret will and should never go away. 
Sometimes we think, if I regret it, then I'm still stuck in it. Regret is a healthy emotion. I hurt some people in some serious ways. I regret that. I hope I will always regret having caused harm. I hope I will always regret the ways that I've hurt myself. If we don't regret, we become sociopaths. It's not enlightenment to not regret. Regret understands uh, when we're unskillful. Uh, it's healthy to feel something about having been unskillful. So as we dig down deeper and deeper and we come back into access uh, the heart of love, forgiveness for ourselves, for all living beings, Kindness towards all living beings. A genuine wish. May everyone be at ease. May suffering in this world end. That's one quality of heart. And in the Brahma Viharas, the uh, different heart qualities of, of the awakened heart, he says also, a natural quality of the heart is compassion. That when we dig down underneath the aversive response, underneath the anger, underneath the fear, underneath the resistance and the survival instinct that wants to push away pain, there's a natural quality of tenderness, of mercy, and of care towards our pain. Karuna uh, trans compassion translated as a quivering, an inner movement in response to the pain and the suffering in this experience of being, this life. Again, compassion is not something that we build. It's not something that we, it's something that we regain access to. when we can get underneath the habitual reactive I don't like. <laughs> For me, the uh, bridge to compassion has definitely been tolerance. I was not able, I don't think most of us are, able to move from I hate pain to I totally love pain. <laughs> and not I love the way that it feels, but I have love for it. I have love uh, and, and kindness towards it. It's just too far to go from hatred to compassion. The middle uh, stone in the crossing this river is tolerance. I went from hating it to hating it but tolerating it to uh, not liking it very much but tolerating it to uh, tolerating it. I went from tolerating it to uh, caring about it a little bit to caring about it a little bit more to those moments of being able to be in pain and meet it with total acceptance and feeling genuinely moved by my own pain or other people's pain. It's a process of getting there. We don't go straight to 
compassion. In the excavation, there's the tolerance level, and then there's the mercy level, and then there's the genuine compassion level. And the practices of meditation, of mindfulness, of metta, get us there, more and more access to compassion. Simply by trying, simply by pointing our intentional efforts in the direction of compassion, it will be uncovered. The only rational, the only wise relationship to pain is compassion. Nothing else works. If it is painful, if anything you're experiencing on retreat is painful, the response that you're looking for is compassion. Always. Have compassion for the pain. Tolerance. Kindness, compassion. But if your experience is pleasurable, one of the other uh, chambers of the heart, qualities of the Brahma Viharas, uh, appreciation. If the experience is pleasant that we're having in our life, this experience that I had today with my daughter swimming in the pool and the joy and the appropriate response to those beautiful moments when there's no pain <laughs> consciously present and it's really pleasurable is appreciation. Appreciative, non-clinging and enjoyment. Jack mentioned the other night the Chinese Buddhist uh, saying, uh, life is 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. As soon as we meet our joy with clinging, it goes on to the sorrow pile. As soon as we meet the pleasure, the joy, with clinging, with attachment, it is no longer a joy. It now becomes the cause of dissatisfaction of suffering. So, of course, our practice is to let go, to let go, and to do our best to meet the pleasurable moments, to enjoy them fully as impermanent experiences to be appreciated without attachment. Easier said than done, huh? but it is the skill that we develop on retreat. It is the work that's being done moment to moment in your practice. Each time we say that loving kindness phrase, each time we meet our experience with appreciation, each moment of mindfulness getting us closer to uncovering that heart, that's natural response will be Non-clinging appreciation will be compassionate response, will be kindness, will be forgiveness. 
shoveling away the debris that's blocking love and all of its forms. The fourth quality of the heart uh, is considered a balancing quality. And the practical uh, application of metta and of uh, karuna and sympathetic appreciation, appreciative joy, is this, uh, as we're doing in the afternoon meditations, this wishing, may all beings be at ease. Uh, uh, may I uh, learn to fully forgive you. May I forgive myself. It's this quality of wishing, wishing, wishing. And one of the ways that the Buddha talked about the balancing quality of the heart, the uh, equanimity quality of the heart, was saying, now be careful here. You've been doing a lot of wishing. You're wishing to be happy. You're wishing for them to be happy. You're wishing for a lot. <laughs> it's good training. It's good for your mind. It's good for your heart. But remember that your wishes do not dictate other people's happiness or unhappiness. It's really good for you. Wish all day long to be kinder. It will create more kindness in your life if you practice metta in that way. But don't get too uh, attached. Remember, everyone has their own karma. Their happiness depends on how they relate to what's happening in their life, not what you wish for them. A balanced approach to kindness, to compassion, to appreciation. Stay balanced in it. Don't take on the cape and think that you are Captain Karma going out to save the world in a single meditation. <laughs> I think of it a little bit like the serenity prayer that they use in recovery circles. Not that I can remember it right now, but. <laughs> no notes. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things that I can. And the wisdom, I would maybe even say equanimity, to know the difference. These are some of my thoughts of, about love, about forgiveness, about recovering the heart.
This path is practical. It's not very mystical at all, I don't think. I think it's all very practical. But what is true is that we have no idea what our timeline is. For me, five, ten years before I felt much benefit, some of you might be feeling it way more quickly. I hope so. I hope you're not a, on the small bus like me. I hope that you don't have as many learning disabilities as I do. I hope that it unfolds much more quickly for you. Now, I also know that uh, some of you maybe have been at it for 20, 30 years, and you're sitting here a little pissed. You're saying, wait a minute, I haven't forgiven everybody yet. I didn't know I had to do that. <laughs> no wonder. <laughs> it unfolds in its own way, in its own time. What we do is we bring wise attention to the present moment. We bring as much kindness as possible to ourselves and to every living being. And we have the intention to forgive, the intention to be compassionate, and the intention to let go, absolutely. and the willingness to fail miserably over and over and over. That is all. I thank you for your attention, for your practice. Before we end tonight, Jack would like to say a few things. Thank you, no thank you, Noah. Um, I just want to say a couple of things about the owls. Um, one of our jobs as teachers is to try to create as protected and safe a space for you all to practice as we can so that you can do this excavation and uh, open yourself. Um, also, you become quite sensitive, as you can feel, even in the course of these days. Um, a lot of you have gone to see the young owl that was in the Joshua tree today or in previous days, look up at the tree at the nest. Um, and it's become clear, it became clear by midday or at some point, that it wasn't a good thing for people to get too close to that owl because uh, the mother and father owl might not come down to feed it. So we put out a chair and a sign saying, stay uh, a, 
a long distance away from it. Um, and I regret, in terms of caring for the retreat, that I didn't or we didn't do it sooner. Um, I know some people are upset or worried about the owl, and rightfully so in terms of caring for all the beings that are part of this retreat. Um, and because we'd had an owl in the tree right outside this door with a nest and four babies one year and people were walking by and it didn't seem to matter, I had the sense that it was all right, but I'm not sure that it was actually. And uh, a naturalist came in and said, keep people away and let's just leave it. So I'm sorry for not holding that protection that we carry for you as well for the owl this morning. That's certainly my mistake. Um, but you can include the owls in your metta. They'll appreciate it. Um, and mostly it's just to appreciate them and give space for that. And uh, um, know that we share this center with the tortoises and the coyotes and the owls and the cactus wren and so many beings that are really part of this dance of opening. And as you open, you get more sensitive and more connected, and it's a beautiful thing. And in it, you also care more, which we really need on this earth. So for everybody that's cared in that way, I also really want to thank you and uh, appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.